Stella Morabito is a senior contributor at The Federalist. Her essays have appeared in various publications, including The Washington Examiner, American Greatness, Town Hall, Public Discourse, and Human Life Review. Stella served for a decade as an intelligence analyst for the CIA, where she focused on various aspects of Russian and Soviet politics, including communist media, propaganda, and disinformation. She has a master's degree from the University of Southern California in Russian and Soviet history. She's author of a new book, The Weaponization of Loneliness, How Tyrants Stoke Our Fear of Isolation to Silence, Divide, and Conquer. Stella, welcome to the Economic War Room. Well, thank you. It's really great to be here, Kim. Stella, in the Economic War Room, we try and identify problems, and then we come up with solutions. And that's what I love about your book. It intrigues me because you've identified a serious problem, something no one else is talking about, and then you come up with some solutions, what we can do about it. That's, that was the goal, yes. So that's what we do in the Economic War Room. We talk the bad, the good, and the beautiful. And we identify a problem, then we identify uh, how to best address the problem, and then we talk about the beautiful things that can happen if we do the right thing, if we implement the solutions. And your book sort of follows that pattern. Uh, it shines a light on a serious problem and provides a way out and a ray of hope. So let's start with the bad. Tell us about loneliness. Okay, well, I was looking for the common denominator, uh, kind of the common thread that runs through all of the bad agendas. Uh, you know, instead of playing whack-a-mole with a hundred different uh, crazy, insane agendas out there, I was looking for what connected them all and what causes them, what gives them oxygen is this... Um, uh, tendency to self-censor when we have questions about, uh, you know, the dangers that lie ahead. And, you know, that gets, uh, that self-censorship is induced through political correctness. And um, I look at political correctness, identity politics, and mob agitation as kind of the three-legged stool of tyranny. And together they form what I call the machinery of loneliness. And how it works is that, you know, it, it, we all know instinctively that human beings are social animals. We absolutely need to connect with other people. Um, you know, in isolation, we, we can't survive. And and the flip side of that is we have a real terror. I mean, a, a, a fear, intense, primal fear of being ostracized, of being cast out, of being rejected. And tyrants, totalitarians, uh, whether they do it consciously or not, they at least know instinctively that the way to control people is first through inducing that isolation, which uh, you know is often done through demonization and demonization campaigns, so that people shut up about what they believe, or they'll even lie about what they believe, and before you know it, you have kind of a public opinion cascade that's false. You know, people are hiding what they really believe, and and that creates uh, what's called a spiral of silence. But as Hannah Arendt pointed out in Origins of Totalitarianism, her epic work, uh, you know, mid 20th century, tyranny absolutely depends on isolating people and creating that fear. Well, you know, the, the Bible actually talks about this. I mean, oh, yeah. in Genesis 2.18, it's not good for man to be alone. And, and really, tyrants, I think you're right, because 
A drug gang finds the isolated person and picks them off and brings them into the drug gang. Uh, the Hitler in, in Nazi Germany did the same thing. And, and it's really, you said we're basically pack animals. I mean, that's, that's what the book kind of describes. And how do you take out a pack animal? You isolate it and then you kill it. And that's what the lions do to the, to the gazelles, right? Yes, yeah. No, we're, it, that fear is very easily exploited and we're vulnerable to it. I think instinctively we all know, oh, I didn't want to say anything because I was afraid it was going to offend. And, uh, you know, we understand how, you know, how that works uh, kind of instinctively, but we don't seem to have a, a conscious enough understanding of how these dynamics play out uh, throughout society and can can destroy civil society uh, as we can see that that happening now. Well, you know, you've studied history. Can you give us some examples? Because your book does a great job with this of giving examples through history uh, where tyrants have used isolation and then taken power. Oh, yes. No, it, it's a common pattern uh, throughout all of these uh, radical, so-called utopian revolutions. Uh, I, I go back to the French Revolution and you see the mob in action. They're doing just what was done in 2020, the summer of 2020, toppling statues, renaming places and streets, you know, trying to erase cultural memory. Uh, and all of these things are very destructive. They had a de-Christianization de campaign. So anybody who was identified as an enemy of the revolution could be, uh, you know, pointed out and, uh, you know, taken care of by the mob. And uh, and so, again, this repeats itself constantly. We saw it in, in Hitler's um, Nazi, you know, the Third Reich. We saw it in the Bolshevik Revolution in, in particular, uh, where uh, the war on family was just blatant. I mean, uh, you know, children were taught in school uh, to uh, disavow their parents in, in the manner of that one, uh, you know, that, that child who turned in his father, who was later martyr. They, they called him a martyr. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, everybody was supposed to emulate him and snitch on their family in, in the name of the revolution. And, and this, of course, carries on in Mao's cultural revolution, all the violent mobs, you know, pushing struggle sessions. And you, could, you weren't safe as a bystander in situations like that. You had to join in. Uh, with the humiliations, with the beatings, in order to you know, be considered uh, you know, a friend of the revolution. So it goes on and on. That fear of ostracism is you know, paraded about uh, constantly or, or used and you know, through uh, examples uh, you know, where, where the mob descends on the, uh, you know, the enemy of the revolution or whatever, whatever demonizing term is used. Today, you hear all kinds of demonizing terms that, that, that scare people from saying what they believe. For example, you know, bigot or hater or, well, the, the, my personal favorite is conspiracy theorist, uh, because, you know, that's just really supposed to shut you up, uh, accuse you of being crazy, all the phobia, you know, whether it's transphobe or whatever, Islamophobe. And so you can't, talk about any of this stuff without fear and the, the, my, the an election denier is one of the newer ones yeah no i you could call this the eleanor rigby approach look at all the lonely people we're gonna have to take a break when we come back uh, let's talk about covid and what happened 
just in the past couple of years. Stella, COVID was probably the most, I don't know, meaningful, impactful event of the last hundred years, you know, except you know, major world wars and the fall of the Berlin Wall. But it was a significant event for all of humanity. How has it been used by tyrants to isolate us? Oh, well, you got another hour. Um, actually, it, what it did was um, enforce our isolation in a way that it had never been done before. Prior to COVID, there were all kinds of headlines about um, loneliness epidemic and uh, deaths of despair and the suicide rates uh, spiking. And a lot of that due to loneliness, isolation, which causes not only mental illness, but uh, physical ailments as well, the stress. So when COVID came, it was as though all of these, um, you know, it all reached ahead because it fast-tracked our isolation. It was used to separate us really from one another in, in just the most brutal ways uh, that, you know, was, uh, I guess, trying to get us used to this idea of being distanced from one another, being kind of anonymous with the face coverings and, and, and the, uh, you know, those who enforced them. And then it brought about the snitch culture uh, where, where, you know, all of the fear, the fear of death, of course, uh, that was hanging over everyone, especially in the early days, was magnified so that you, you would get um, a lot of, uh, you know, meddlers and, and, you know, it built up um, a sense of a surveillance culture that uh, can be used now in the future. I mean, they've had like the acid test was COVID to see how compliant we would be. And people were just enormously compliant, surprisingly compliant. And, uh, and so that, I guess that's how it was used, but it absolutely enforced isolation that had already been building through all the family breakdown and community breakdown we already had. Well, when you look at your neighbor and you see them as a source of your own death, as a potential murderer of you and your family because they have this disease, I mean, then you can demand they do anything. You have to take the vaccine or you have to isolate or you have to stay away from me, don't touch me, don't get near me. I mean, I, don't, I can't think of a finer, uh, stronger method of driving loneliness than thinking of your neighbor as a potential murderer. Oh, yes, even family. I mean, as Thanksgiving approaches, it's, uh, you know, it's really, uh, it's just sad, pathetic how COVID cultivated hostilities, not, I mean, you know, really badly in uh, society itself with neighbors, community members, coworkers. You couldn't even get into an elevator sometimes without somebody saying, have you been vaccinated? Uh, and of course, uh, this, there's just no other way to uh, interpret it other than an intent to keep us separated. I mean, the, one of the, uh, the clear indicators of that to me was the fact that they wouldn't allow therapeutics. I mean, you know, even talk of vitamin D, uh, not to mention ivermectin or anything that would uh, help people fight this disease. Uh, no, you had it had to be the vaccine. You had to get injected. So uh, all of you know, all of these other pathways are cut off. 
people uh, see one another as vectors of disease and death. And that's the perfect storm for uh, basically what I call marching us all into solitary confinement. And we've got to snap out of that. Yeah, no, and, and not only that, but you're not allowed to communicate any ideas or anything contrary to the narrative. Only the state understands what's right, and you have to go along with what the state tells you. And we're seeing that not just in COVID. We're seeing it in another form. I don't know if you're familiar with ESG, but I read your book and thought of something we talk about all the time, which is investing environment, social governance, and those isolate people too. Uh, fossil fuels, you're killing people if you're using fossil fuels, if you're driving your car, so your kids hate parents because their parents are killing the planet. And, and, and S, we've got to stand up for social justice, which means mob rule. It doesn't mean we actually care about another human being. It means that we care about an ideology and we have mob rule and governance, which divides us all by classes. And so there's a, it's a board mandate that your corporate board has to have so many women and so many minorities and so many LGBTQ, which means we're, we're identified by our external characteristics. We're not human beings any longer. We're, we're just a, a, a number to go on a quota. Have you looked at ESG and thought about it in that way? Oh, yes. No, absolutely. It's all ties into one vast demonization campaign. And demonization comes in many forms. Uh, they want you to see your neighbor as a vector of disease. They want you to see your neighbor who doesn't comply uh, with ESG as, as someone killing the planet. They want you to see your neighbor, even your family members uh, who don't comply as uh, the enemy. And this is the constant theme that ran through all of these utopian revolutions, the enemy. And, you know, we see it on different levels. I mean, the, the world-class dictator is, you know, of a greater magnitude, perhaps, but you see it in one, even one-on-one -on -one human relationships with the gaslighting partner or, uh, you know, the, the toxic boss. You see it with the uh, cult leader, like uh, the example I've used in the past is Jim Jones. He takes everybody, isolates them in the jungle and, you know, works his propaganda on them to the point that they all commit what he called revolutionary suicide. I mean, it just doesn't get any worse than that. But, well, it does in the sense that, you uh, you know, these dictators have had whole societies under, under that kind of uh, mob rule that, uh, you know, uh, really horrific uh, situation. Yeah, no, it's an attack, you mentioned, it's an attack on Christianity historically or on the church or on faith of any kind. It's an attack on family. It, it isolates individuals. It, you think about this, uh, the sad family that loses a teenage daughter because she's, she gets so isolated and lonely and so forth and they, they lose her either to suicide or she rebels against the family or whatever. And then you think of that multiplied a hundred million times. And that's what society's doing. It makes us feel, I mean, I felt lonely at times. It's like, I can't believe this. I look at the election results or I look at this and I said, don't people believe in the flag and American values and the faith and all that anymore? And I felt like Elijah, when he just defeated the prophets of Baal, runs off, faces God, and then he says, oh God, I fought so hard. I'm a prophet and I've done so much. And I alone am left. 
And then God just gives them a comeuppance and says, no, you're not alone. I've got 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. And by the way, in the next chapter, he brings him a partner, Elisha, to walk with him. So we're going to need to take another break. When we come back, let's talk about the hopeful and how we can work together to end loneliness and see a brighter America. Stella, in your great new book, The Weaponization of Loneliness, you talk about when we get lonely, we lose freedom. People don't think about that connection, but your book is so much more. It, it, it is not just an Oprah book club selection where, where you know, two lonely people are talking about, well, I cured my loneliness because I did therapy or whatever. It's a political book. It's an economic book. It is a book that warns us about what can happen in the future and gives us a solution for how we can avoid a tyrannical future. So tell us about um, how we lose basic human rights and then how we can take them back. All right, well, um, free speech, as I've always said, is lose it or use, use it or lose it. Uh, and if you can't speak openly, if you think about this, I always think of the First Amendment as something that protects our private sphere of life, protects us in terms of our families, our faith communities, all other communities, our friendships, uh, because without the ability to speak openly to one another, you are isolated and uh, you can't really have relationships, period. And that's exactly what tyrants want. They want us not talking to one another uh, honestly and openly in a sense of community. Um, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote, uh, I, I just think this is an amazing quote, is that a despot puts all of his care into isolating people. He doesn't really care whether or not you love him as long as you don't love each other. And and I think that's really key. And uh, Václav Havel, I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with his really uh, life-changing essay uh, called The Power of the Powerless. Uh, that was published in 1978. He was a dissident in the so in Soviet Czechoslovakia. Later, after the wall fell, he became president of the Czech Republic. But um, his thesis was is very uh, it, it's so relevant to the solution. His point is that it's the hidden sphere of life, the private sphere, family, faith, community, friends in which freedom really thrives. And when you, can, uh, when you can speak openly to others in that sphere, uh, that ripples outward and, and helps to create civil society. And so what we have to do is understand these two things, that free speech is absolutely got to snap out of our self-censorship it's absolutely necessary unless you want to live in a vault, uh, you know, virtual solitary confinement, and um, and and you have to, you know, break out of that and protect and guard uh, the private sphere of life. Now, part of that is this is a hard work. This is not a five second soundbite. We we have to learn. We we have to become aware of these dynamics. Uh, and we also have to reach out because there is so much brokenness already that have that's been cultivated through all of these awful agendas that have caused and 
and hastened family breakdown and a lot of that fast-tracked by the COVID isolation. So it's going to be some hard work. I mean, you originally brought up, earlier you brought up uh, the biblical reference to feeling isolated. And there's a lot of that. If you read the Bible, you'll find, I mean, if you read it carefully looking for political correctness, you'll find that a lot. People shutting up about, you know, what they believe or being caught up in the, you know, in, in the culture, uh, you know, all the attacks uh, through uh, these cultural demonization campaigns. But um, the very first thing that happens, if you look at the garden, is what does the serpent do? What does the evil one do? The very first thing he does is he makes sure that Eve is isolated from Adam. He makes sure she can't consult he makes sure they can't talk to each other before he takes her down this road and then uses her to corrupt him. So it, it's very interesting. This is this is um, th this whole dynamic is, is is old, ancient. Well, you talk about propaganda awareness and you just touched on that, which we've got to be aware of the propaganda being used to isolate us. Uh, and then you talk about community. And this is the solution that Glenn Beck brings up in The Great Reset. If they're going global, we have to go local and build yes. a community relationship. Get to know your local officials, get to know your local grocer, get to know, you know, build community to end isolation and together, a bunch of communities can stop this great reset effort being waged against us, right? Oh, that's right. And that's what they're scared to death of. That's what they want to stop in its tracks uh, is, is friendship, really. I mean, freedom you know, begins with friendship and family and, uh, you know, faith. I mean, you know, all of those are like F words to the great reset folks, you know. Uh, but that's what we need to, uh, you know, to thrive. And so I do bring up the solution of building parallel institutions or parallel policies. And this was something Václav Havel brought up in The Power of the Powerless. Policies meaning like small communities, you start uh, talking about these things and, and just kind of developing strong friendships. And I, I mentioned a book club that I had where we discussed uh, political correctness and, and and identity politics and a lot of different works on propaganda and how it affects us personally. I piloted a book club like that. And I think it would be great if discussion groups anyway popped up to talk about these dynamics. So that was one of the other uh, points I brought up. And there's all kinds of little things people can do in their daily lives that can make a big difference. Well, you know, in fact, I think that's a great idea. I think all our viewers, you get, get your friends, get, get a copy of this book and get your friends together and, and start a book club to read it. Let me read just something from the back cover. The weaponization of loneliness offers a message of hope. We can resist this psychological warfare if we have strong bonds in our families, faith communities, and friendships. Let's resolve to talk to one another openly and often, especially about the consequences of giving in to social pressures and media hype. Indeed, totalitarians always seek to destroy private life because it is the very fount of freedom. And that is a message for the holiday. Stella, you've done an incredible job explaining to us how tyrants have weaponized this natural human uh, state of being and, and we need to fight against it. We need to fight against loneliness. Give us one last word of hope for our viewers, and, and then we'll have to go. Well, um, 
you know, free speech is use it or lose it. And, um, and, and, you know, a lot of people are just hungering for this, even if they're people who've gone along with, uh, you know, all of these mandates, people really do need this sense of connection and just reaching out. You might be surprised if you refuse to self-censor among somebody who uh, implicitly trusts you, even if they don't know what you believe. A lot of times, and this has happened to me, they're like, oh, wow, I, I thought I was all alone. And so what you end up doing is embolden a like-minded thinker. And even if the person disagrees with you, you've at least watered down the stereotype. Where can uh, people get this great book? Well, it's uh, it's mostly for sale online, Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And now there is a Kindle, like, uh, a, a Kindle edition on Amazon. Thank you so much, Stella. Hey, we're going to summarize all of this in our free economic battle plan where you can find links to the book and, and, and the research that she's mentioned. You can get that at economicwarroom.com. Remember, what we see as a marketplace, our enemies view as a battle space. This is Kevin Freeman from the Economic War Room.